Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lady in McLean, Stanley and Michael Walker, and with me is the wonderful Ash Sakar. I see you've got the all white memo as well, Moya. Glad <laughs> to see that you're checking the company Slack. I don't want to spoil the illusion, but I am actually wearing black trousers. However, top on point. Um, coming up tonight, we will be talking about how the Israeli embassy has tried to influence a UK court case. We'll also be discussing Nadine Doris. She's still squatting as an MP, despite saying she resigned months ago. Plus a controversial moment from the Women's World Cup final. On to our first story. I just want to warn you, this segment does contain some distressing descriptions of child death. Lucy Letby, the UK's most prolific serial killer, has been sentenced today. The former nurse received a whole life order, which means she's going to spend her entire life behind bars. She's only the fourth woman in UK history to receive this sentence. Letby was convicted of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others over the course of 12 months between June 2015 and June 2016. But beyond Letby's immediate jail sentence, her case has resulted in a huge, ongoing fallout for the NHS. Particularly under scrutiny is the NHS management system that may have allowed Letby to carry on killing for longer. Consultants at the Countess of Chester Hospital raised concerns about a spate of baby deaths in 2015. Lucy Letby's name was brought up. But these doctors were made to apologise to the nurse for, quote, victimisation. Whistleblower Dr Ravi Jairam became convinced of Letby's involvement in the tragedies after an incident where he found her attending to a baby in distress. Here's Dr Jairam speaking to ITV's Paul Brand about that night. Tell me about the night when you walked in on Lucy Letby standing over the cot of Baby K. That is a night that is etched on my memory and will be in my nightmares forever, to be honest. I was sitting at the desk just outside the room writing notes and uh, the nurse looking after the baby said she was popping to the delivery suite to go and talk to the parents and she said, I've left Lucy in their babysitting. Part of me was saying, you better go in and just check if everything's okay because you know what's happened before when, when Lucy's been on duty. As I walked towards uh, the incubator, I could see on the monitors that the oxygen saturations, which is basically the baby's oxygen levels, were dropping. And they dropped to a level that um, ordinarily, number one, the alarms would have been going off. But number two, the nurse would have called for help. And... Lucy Letby was standing by the top of the incubator. She didn't have her hands in the incubator. What uh, was she doing then? Well, she, just, she was just standing there. Now, tubes become dislodged. But this was a 25-week gestation baby um, who wasn't kicking around, who wasn't vigorous. The only possibility was that that tube had to have been dislodged deliberately. Two more babies nearly died in the next month at the hospital, but managers told doctors there was, quote, no evidence Letby was causing any harm. After more baby deaths, consultants met with the hospital board and chief executive Tony Chambers. This is Dr Jairam's account of that meeting. The very first thing that Tony Chambers, the chief executive, said to us, he cogitated for a few seconds and he said, well, I can see how that might be a very convenient explanation for things. And what that says to me is that He'd already decided that wasn't going on and this was us just trying to cover up. He was trying to blame you, in other words? I think so. He didn't say it explicitly then. We discussed having CCTV put onto the unit. We discussed um, 
her being supervised one-to-one with somebody watching her all the time. And then we heard that um, Lucy Letby had been moved to the risk and governance department. So she'd been taken off the unit. Babies stopped collapsing after Letby was moved off the unit. A review of the deaths was conducted by the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health, which cleared Letby of suspicion. Then the consultants who had raised concerns were told to attend another meeting with NHS managers who upbraided them for Letby's treatment. We bullied her, uh, we'd behaved unprofessionally, we'd behaved in ways that were unbecoming to the profession, and then read out a letter from her, which was a a very aggressive letter from her, basically saying, I'm coming back to work and you have to work with me and I'm going to prove to you that I'm a great nurse and I'm not a killer like you say. And then Tony Chambers finished off by saying, so she's coming back to work and this is the most chilling thing. I'm drawing a line under this, you will draw a line under this and if you cross that line there will be consequences for you. You were asked in court, why didn't you just phone the police if you had concerns? But here is the chief executive of the hospital, your boss, saying if you take any further action, there will be consequences for you. You have to draw a line under it. I mean, that must be an impossible position for you to be in. It's an utterly impossible and a Kafka-esque situation to be in. As well, we were told when we initially raised concerns that if we call the police, there'll be blue and white tape everywhere. That's the end of the unit. It, It would be really bad for the reputation of the trust. In fact, it was the killer who was about to turn complainant. Lucy Letby took out a grievance, with doctors forced to write this apology to her. Dear Lucy, we would like to apologise for any inappropriate comments that may have been made during this difficult period. We are very sorry for the stress and upset that you have experienced in the last year. Please be reassured that patient safety has been our absolute priority during this difficult time. Stunning, really. Um, And on where the blame lies, Dr Jairam was unequivocal. He says management's lack of action cost children's lives. Do you think the lives of some of those babies could have been saved if management had taken action sooner? It's a horrible thing to say. But I do genuinely believe that there are four or five babies who could be going to school now who aren't. His comments were echoed by colleagues. Dr John Gibbs also worked on the Countess of Chester Hospital as a consultant paediatrician. Sky News asked him if lives could have been saved. Could we have stopped Lucy Letby earlier? Um, And I think some of the parents of the babies towards the end will be asking that. But then once we realised, we had great concerns about Lucy Letby and she was removed from the neonatal unit, why did it take 11 months for the police to then be called in? But that's something that... uh, we paediatricians have to look at for why we didn't stop her earlier, um, but also the managers need to answer for why it took so long for the police to come in. One nursing manager who failed to heed warnings about Letby has now been suspended from her current role. Former Countess of Chester Chief Executive Tony Chambers, however, retired from the NHS in June 2023 with a £1.5 million pension, according to reporting from the Mirror. And in response to Dr Jiram's account of their meeting, Chambers said... This is a one-sided account of the meeting where what I said has been taken out of context. The implication, if any, was that a significant number of factors needed to be considered, including demand, acuity, clinical care, staffing and environment. Management culture within the NHS is controversial. Some say that bureaucracy and a bevy of central managers is the key to boosting the health service's performance. Others believe that entrenched management culture is removing powers from doctors and nurses in favour of, quote, 
cash-driven bureaucrats. Now, this is a piece penned for Navarra Media in 2020 by Joe Sutton Klein, and it's titled, To understand why the NHS is responding to COVID-19, we must look at who runs it. Here's what Sutton Klein has to say about managers. NHS managers don't know what to do with a blank check and instructions to take whatever messages are necessary to save lives because that is not what NHS management has ever been about. The daily silver command meetings that are taking place in hospitals across the UK systemically exclude frontline hospital workers to the extent that it is easier for NHS workers to communicate to their managers via the media than to navigate the steep hierarchies within hospitals to reach the people in charge who sit so many, many echelons above them them. General managers are not just failing to hear the needs of frontline NHS workers, but they are also missing out on the suggestions and ideas that are obvious to those at the sharp end of this crisis. Joe Sutton Klein was writing in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, but her analysis of the issues with the NHS management seemed relevant to the Lucy Letby case. Ash, is NHS management rightly under fire right now? I think that All of the relevant information will come out if there is an inquiry which is able to compel people to give evidence. But it certainly looks that management really were responsible for a series of critical failures that enabled Lucy Letby to continue harming the infants who were entrusted to her care. And the reason why I say this is because there is actually a point of comparison in relatively recent history of a similar case. In the early 90s, there was the case of Beverly Allett. She was a nurse who harmed children entrusted to her care. She was responsible for the deaths of four children and she injured, I think, um, I think nine more. And she committed her offences over the period of 59 days. And at the time of uh, Beverly Allett's arrest and conviction, the hospital that employed her came under real fire because they'd delayed getting in touch with the police by four days. Now, when you compare that to Lucy Letby, where her period of offending was over the course of a year, when you had an 11-month delay between the hospital um, being alerted to the suspicions regarding her behaviour and then getting in touch with the police, that is an entirely different kettle of fish. It's, it's, It's an absolutely unthinkable kind of delay, especially when you've got consultants who are generally very well trusted. They're certainly a lot more trusted than nurses. That's not, I'm saying a good thing, but I'm saying that within the hierarchy of hospitals, their word is often taken for a lot more. That is really an astonishing delay on the part of management, especially when you consider that was there was a supposed uh, report and, you know, look into what had been going on. So I think that, yes, NHS management culture is coming under fire rightly. That doesn't mean that, you know, one of the sort of justifications for austerity in the public sector is that you get rid of needless bureaucrats. The fact is, is that public services, including the NHS, are pretty big bureaucracies and you need people to administer them. It's really looking at what should be the guiding principles of those managers. One of the consequences of Andrew Lansley's reforms of the NHS in the 2010s was that the NHS became a system that was competing against itself. You had a lot more internal competition and you also had ways of measuring you know successes which were like okay imagine you're a business patients are the market and you're you're sort of you know making a pitch to them. Now 
when when you make trusts behave in that way, what you're doing is you're prioritizing public perception over and above patient safety and making things work in the safest possible way for patients. The other thing that, of course, it did is that it was kind of a smokescreen for the you know wanton funding vandalism that was going on behind the scenes. Um, and that is, I think, a really topsy-turvy set of priorities for the NHS to be run by. Imagine if the NHS was run solely on the principle of patient safety at all times. You'd end up with really different policy decisions being made at the level of central government. Those policy decisions would filter down to management and how they would be administering the National Health Service as a whole. And something which, you know, kind of came across my field of vision online was think about every time you board a commercial flight, think about the amount of operational redundancy there is uh, in commercial flying, how many fail-safes there are. Um, Sure, you could run a commercial flight with less faff and possibly less staff, but you wouldn't do it because passenger safety is supposed to be the first and foremost priority in running an airline. Now, for some reason, that's not how the NHS is run. Instead of looking at contingency planning, fail-safes, Uh, maximizing patient safety at every turn, whether that means from investing in enough capacity, enough doctors, enough beds, enough nurses, the right equipment, or whether that means having enough checks and balances to make sure that vulnerable people are getting exactly the kind of care that they need. That's not happening because that was deemed inefficient. So you cut the capacity, you you cut the emergency capacity, which is what meant we were so vulnerable going into the pandemic. And then you also create space I think for very bad actors like Lucy Letby to come in and exploit the flaws in a system which has been designed that way by years, decades of conservative governments. Now, it's not just NHS management that is being blamed for Letby possibly being able to allow to operate for so long. Uh, Sheila Sobrani is the president of the Royal College of Nursing and she shared the clip of Dr. Ravi Jayaram's interview with ITV. She also wrote this. If we are going to learn anything from this case, we need to stop denying that racism is a serious issue in the NHS. This doctor would have been listened to if he was white, and Lucy Letby would have been stopped sooner if she wasn't white. This was a serious safeguarding issue that compromised the lives and well-being of babies and subsequently their parents. Dr. Ravi Jairam was not listened to or taken seriously. Ash, is Sheila Sabrani right? Is race a factor in the Letby case? All right. I think that how Lucy Letby was perceived probably played a role in her being able to go for so long committing these offences without being apprehended. And that you've got to take into account the whole picture. Race is a part of it. Gender is another part of it. Outward personality. Those are all things which have would have facilitated her being given the benefit of the doubt where others might not have been. Was Dr. Ravi Jairam not taken as seriously on account of his race. Again, that's possible. One of the things that we know about the experiences of clinicians in the NHS is that very often clinicians of colour are held to different standards than to white clinicians. I think that all those things are true and all those things quite possibly played a role in the case of Lucy Letby. But I think that there is a real danger of overstating the importance of race in this case, and I'll tell you why. One is that Dr. Ravi Jairam was not the only clinician to have raised concerns 
about Lucy Letby. There were other consultants, including white consultants, and their concerns weren't taking weren't taken seriously either. As I said, of course, non non clinical managerial staff have an awful lot of power within NHS trusts. But when you look at clinicians overall, consultants are very, very highly regarded. So the fact that their concerns about Lucy Letby were being so dismissed tells me "Hmm, maybe there's something else that's going wrong here. Another thing, again, to bring in a point of contrast is with the Beverly Allett case, she was also a white woman who was a nurse. Now she was apprehended much more quickly than Lucy Letby. So I'm not dismissing the impact of race wholesale, but I think it's being overstated here. And that's that's not to say that the people talking about it are bad people or they're just incorrect or they're silly. I really understand wanting to find an explanation for just how horrific this entire situation is. But my concern is that if you say, oh, well, this is all to do with Lucy Letby's race, is that you actually end up downplaying just how serious the mismanagement and the dysfunction was when it came to this particular hospital trust and the kind of incentives which are built into NHS management culture, potentially nationwide, because then it's just a case of like, okay, well, you're you're dealing with unconscious bias rather than actually creating an NHS system which will prioritize the covering up of wrongdoing, mismanagement, uh, patient safety concerns. And you end up not tackling, I think, a very serious problem which can be changed with policy if it's designed to put patient safety at the heart of it. We'll go to our next story now. The Israeli embassy has been putting pressure on the office of the UK Attorney General to influence the outcome of British court cases. That's according to a freedom of information request obtained by the direct action group Palestine Action which is reported in The Guardian. In the disclosure, the specific requests made by the Israeli embassy are unclear as the records are heavily redacted. But in an email to the embassy following a meeting with Israeli officials, the Director General of the Attorney General's office, Douglas Wilson, wrote this. As we noticed, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, makes its prosecution decisions and manages its casework independently. The law officers are unable to intervene on an individual case or comment on issues related to active proceedings. Minutes of the meeting also refer to Wilson, quote, noting the operational independence of the CPS and the sensitivities of engaging with them on individual cases. This would be pretty remarkable behaviour, showing a UK ally trying to interfere in Britain's judicial process. And Palestine Action are suspicious this was all to try and encourage a tougher stance towards them. A spokesperson for the Israeli embassy has said that it respects the independence of the British judicial system and, quote, under no circumstances would interfere in UK legal proceedings. Well, I'm joined now by Palestine Action's co-founder, Huda Mori Huda. First of all, can you explain what your group does and why would the Israeli embassy be interested in targeting you? So Palestine Action is a direct action network and we target Israel's largest weapons firm, Albert Systems and other complicit companies. We launched this network in response to a lack of failure of a democratic process to end British complicity with the apartheid state of Israel. And since we've launched, we've had hundreds of people take direct action, which has involved blockading gates, 
breaking into these factories, damaging their weapons, climbing onto their roofs and causing severe disruption to them time and time again. At the start of last year, the company was forced out of their Oldham headquarters, which was a huge weapons factory. In the summer of last year, they were forced to abandon their London headquarters after a targeted campaign, and they were kicked out of contracts worth hundreds of millions of pounds as a result of this campaign against Albert Systems. So the Israeli embassy's interference isn't necessarily a huge surprise considering we are targeting the Israeli weapons trade, which is built essentially off the destruction of Palestine and profits by being able to operate in countries such as the UK, sell on to other governments and other oppressive regimes across the world. And we are directly intervening in that process by using our own bodies and sometimes by risking our liberty in the process. And of course, you activists have faced court cases because of that action. Are you confident that the meeting to which these documents pertain to was about you and those court cases? Yes, definitely. I mean, we are the only direct action network in solidarity with Palestine who have who are facing numbers of arrests and different court cases. And a lot of references in these documents talked about the protest courts and sentencing uh, bill, for example. It talks about the Colston appeal months before this judgment came out, which massively reduced uh, the ability to rely on the Human Rights Act as a defence in court, which was being talked about in the scope of reducing defences uh, within these documents and within these meetings. There's also other references to uh, joint declarations between the UK Ministry of Justice and Israel. And I mean, the Ministry of Justice in this country is responsible for prisons, courts, and the uh, supposed criminal justice system. So while there is any need for any involvement uh, by Israel within that, um, you know, baffles me. Uh, but we can clearly see from the references and from the uh, mentions of the gravity of the situation, uh, talking about how this matter has also been referred to the Home Office, and that they are basically saying that they will send this information off um, and make Israel's representations clear to other parties involved in the Attorney General's office, which has had implications directly for Palestine action. The documents suggest that the UK side resisted Israeli requests. Does that give you confidence or not? No, I would say quite uh, the opposite, actually. There was a meeting in May 2022, and they showed the minutes of these meetings. Some of it is obviously redacted, and the part that's not is uh, them reiterating how independent the CPS is, as you talked about at the start of this uh, at the start of this segment, and about how they can't interfere in individual cases unless of exceptional uh, circumstances. But I think the fact that they have to include in minutes of a meeting how independent the CPS is just suggests that they were talking about cases in the first place and felt the need to cover their back, so to speak, on a written record. And we've also been told by researchers and lawyers who've looked over this information and find it pretty damning and, and, and showing evidence of Israeli interference in these cases, that actually when you are trying to get this type of information through the, through the Freedom of Information Act, when it relates to matters of national security, as they will say, or matters in terms of bilateral relations between the UK and Israel, that they will be referred to a special committee which often involves senior police officers, military officials, before this information is released. 
So they were obviously trying their hardest to reduce uh, the amount of damning information that is out there. But I think what we can see uh, says, says a lot in itself. How did you know to submit these requests in the first place? Was it a targeted FOI? Did you have any tip-offs or was it just part of Palestine Axon's general strategy? As part of our campaign, we do send you know, information requests on different issues such as export licenses. Um, but this was specifically referencing to, to um, refer- correspondence between the Israeli embassy and the attorney general's office. We sent similar requests to the Home Office who told us they had the information but they won't release it to us. And we are chasing up um, these FOI requests um, with the Information Commission Office, who will hopefully order them to obtain full disclosure. But look, I'm not necessarily surprised about this information coming out, but that doesn't mean I'm not disturbed. Look, I'm, I'm Palestinian myself. I'm not naive to the extent of British complicity with the apartheid state of Israel. But I think it's pretty disturbing that when you're going through a, you know, you're going through legal proceedings, that the oppressor of the Palestinian people, the oppressor which forced my family out of their home in the first place, is then able and given a warranty by the Attorney General's office and probably other um, other government departments to be able to discuss our cases. Look, I don't have. Um, and in, and I'm able to go talk to Attorney General about the scope of our defences. But a foreign apartheid state has the right to do that. Um, so I just think it it seriously poses questions about the independence of the legal system, the fairness of these trials, and and, and also the extent of what is going on. This is just the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure, um, in these situations. So you know we're hoping to get further information out to show some of the um, further extent of how deep this goes. But the CPS's own guidelines, and this was about the Attorney General's office who superintends the CPS, say that they have to remain independent from political influence. Now that includes political influence from our government, the UK government, and it most definitely includes independence from the uh, Israeli government which they are openly talking with about matters which relate to our cases. And in those cases, that is should amount to an abuse of process. So we are seeing um, what I think is, is unprecedented information getting out about how the UK is willing to allow the apartheid state of Israel um, access to information about our cases. And we don't know how far this goes, what information has been shared, there was mention about sharing further information between the two parties, which does suggest that some information was shared um, in, the first, in the first place. But overall, I think it does show the strength of Palestine action. You know, the Israeli embassy said in response to the Guardian article that they uh, raise awareness about severe attacks related to entities uh, related to Israel. And therefore, it just demonstrates that they were in themselves admitting um, that they are trying to justify it by saying that they need to raise awareness of severe attacks in their own words. But for us, the fact that they feel the need to intervene demonstrates the strength of what we are doing. And we will fight them both at their weapons factories, in the courts, and we will expose them through that process. We're not going to go down without a fight. 
before we move on, we need to talk about an annual event that is fast approaching. The World Transformed will be taking place once again in Liverpool, best city apart from Leeds, this year. And if you're not familiar with TWT, then take a look at this roundup of last year. Socialism is the abolition of poverty. And what we're faced now is the recreation of poverty on a mass scale in this country. We have to be in the communities with the people that are struggling. We have to put our arms around each other in solidarity, in community and in struggle. We've got to struggle together on behalf of our people. We're facing a massive challenge now. And that's why we say the working class is back. Socialism. Well, I'll go in Liverpool. Yeah. The working class is back. We are here. We are going to struggle. We are going to organise. We're going to debate. We're going to win the argument. And we're going to win for our people. socialism now and we have to tell the Labour Party you have to put this shoulder to our wheel as working class people and if you can't do it you need to get out of the way and get somebody else who can. That was last year's festival and this year TWT have already announced the first waves of sessions and discussions. Of course, Navarra Media will be appearing, we're hosting a panel discussion, or we'll be hosting several panel discussions, one of which will be hosted by me. I will also be doing additional hosting on the Tuesday. So if you want to come, head to the TWT site to buy tickets. The link for that is in the YouTube description box below and it would be really fantastic to see as many of you as possible, especially those who live outside London 
London. It is great meeting comrades from across the country and Liverpool. No better place to do it in. Let's go on to our next story. The Spanish women's football team have just claimed their very first World Cup title at England's expense, of course, but their victory has been overshadowed by a huge controversy about sexism and physical boundaries. I am tired just even talking about this story. This is the post-match moment that Spanish forward Jenny Hermoso was congratulated by Spanish FA president Luis Rubiales. Rubiales kisses Hermoso on the lips. And that kiss has sparked outrage across Spain. This is what the current Minister of Equality, Irene Monterero, said on social media with translation via ESPN. Let's not assume that giving a kiss without consent is something that happens. It's a form of sexual violence that women suffer on a daily basis and until now invisible and that we cannot normalise. It is the task of the whole society. Consent in the centre. Only yes is yes. Montero's wasn't a lone voice either. This is from The Guardian. Montero's view was backed by Nadia Trochini, who leads sports coverage at the newspaper El Pais. It is an intrusion, she wrote, an invasion of one's personal space, without consent and aggression. The socialist politician, Adrian Barbon, characterised it as an absolute lack of respect and an abuse that neither the moment nor the euphoria nor the joy justifies, while a spokesperson for the left-wing coalition, Suma Martorois, added her voice to the many on social media calling on Rubiales to resign. Now, Jenny Amoso didn't seem too happy about the kiss at first. In an exchange on Instagram Live, immediately following that incident, she initially said, quote, I did not enjoy that. Hermosa appeared to indicate there was little she could do about it, adding, quote, but what do I do? Look at me. Look at me. Yet after the controversy snowballed, Hermosa released a media statement by the Spanish Football Federation downplaying what happened with Rubiales. She said, it was a totally spontaneous mutual gesture because of the immense joy that winning a World Cup brings. The president and I have a great relationship. His behavior with all of us has been outstanding, and it was a natural gesture of affection and gratitude. Rubiales, unsurprisingly, has said similar. In an interview with Spanish radio broadcaster COPE, he dismissed criticism of his conduct, saying this. It was a peck between two friends celebrating something. Let's ignore the idiots and stupid people. Let's ignore them and enjoy the good things. With everything I've been through, more nonsense. No, we won't pay attention. We'll enjoy the good things. There was no bad intention. But Rubiales is now also facing accusations that he made a lewd gesture towards the women's team just moments before kissing Hermoso. This is Rubiales celebrating next to the Spanish royal family. He has yet to address that second video. Ash, does this controversy go beyond Spanish women's football? I mean, I think it does go beyond Spanish women's football. But just to say at the start, what I'm advocating here isn't some really sanitized version of football. Because look, I think that football has a kind of unique role in being an outlet for, you know, some of our more animal emotions, sometimes a bit of aggression, a bit of bawdiness, but that has to take place within limits. And those limits are don't be racist, don't be transphobic, don't be ableist, don't be misogynistic, don't be homophobic, don't be violent. All right. Those those are the limits in which those animal emotions need to operate. And it is just so self-evident that Rubiales or, you know, his equivalent 
would not and did not behave that way when the men's team won the World Cup for Spain in 2010. Nobody grabbed Iniesta by the face and planted a snog on him. You know, this isn't something that male footballers have to contend with from the president of their national football associations. You know, we've never seen Prince William grab Harry Kane and, you know, stick him in a headlock and like go like this. There's a level of decorum and responsibility that comes with having that very public facing role where you are representing the institution of your nation's football team, not the team itself, but the institution, the body by which new players are identified, brought into the sport. The game is developed and it's able to have this kind of, you know, place in people's day-to-day cultural life. You as, you know, the president of the Spanish FA have different kinds of responsibilities than another football fan might have. So, you know, don't grab at your cock. Don't plant a kiss on a non-consenting football player. And I think it's it's so depressing and, you know, horribly inevitable that Hermoso was roped in to the PR defense of Rubiales because what else could she do? She said she didn't like it. That became a massive news story in a way which risked detracting from the incredible achievement of her team. And she's probably worried about what this would mean for her own career, her own chances at continuing within the game, and her own role within Spanish football. Um, Nobody has ever claimed that football, whether that's UEFA, FIFA, or national football associations, are particularly uncorrupt organizations. And if I was her, I would probably be worried about, you know, experiencing a backlash or some kind of professional repercussions as well. I mean, the non-apology from Rubiales, like, oh, it was stupid, but it was, you know, it was mutual. There was no mutuality there whatsoever. But you know, to answer your question of is this is a problem which extends beyond Spanish football, I mean, I think it does. I think that English football in terms of the women's game has changed an awful lot in recent years. I mean, I think, you know, the turning point of uh, the Euros last year was a really big deal. And you are starting to see a bit less of the sexism and condescension and objectification. Uh, and by objectification, I'm not just talking about casual fans, I'm talking about objectification from, you know, really prominent sports pundits that used to really afflict the game. It's not saying that it's all gone, but that has changed an awful lot. But that is still something which um, I think curtails women's participation in sports at the elite level because, you know, they're, they're subject to all sorts of insinuations on the basis of their gender that men don't get. And then at what should be the crowning glory of a professional career, winning the World Cup, with your national team, suddenly you've got to deal with, you know, an intrusive octopus man who can't keep his hands to himself. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be acceptable at a club at 2am. It's certainly not acceptable on one of the biggest sporting stages that exist in the world. Yeah, that's true. I also can't help but think of the very, very recent announcement that happened just before we went on air that Mason Greenwood is being let go from Manchester United and that they will be parting on mutual agreement and in the statements released they said that Greenwood was cleared of all charges which is not accurate charges against him were dropped fascinating to see what happens next that's uh, but that U-turn has only happened because of the 
diligent reporting of Adam Crafton at the Athletic over the weekend. Would you not agree, Ash? Um, yeah, well, certainly uh, to second what you said about Adam Crafton's reporting, it really has been A1. But I think with Mason Greenwood, it is so depressing once again to see a football club try and do what they feel they can get away with. And we've seen that when you've had football players engage in acts of racist abuse and thinking, of course, about Luis Suarez, thinking of uh, John Terry as well. You've got clubs that stand by them because they think, you know what, we can weather the storm. This player is beloved enough, he scores enough goals for us, or he's a good enough defender. So, you know what, we'll, we'll keep him on. And I think that perhaps Manu were surprised about the intensity of the backlash um, to what had seemed like quite a, a naked attempt to smooth the way for Mason Greenwood's return. And I think that tells you something about the way in which society is changing, the way or the, the culture around football is changing. But let's be clear, they tried to you know hang on to him until they couldn't. And of course, the the standard in a court of law is innocent until proven guilty. Mason Greenwood is, is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. That's true. But you have very different standards when it comes to what professional bodies are allowed to act on. There's a very different standard of evidence when it comes to things like safeguarding. And so, you know, some of the really horrible um, audio material that people may have come across when it was leaked onto the internet. That is something that can be taken into account, even if uh, you don't end up with a successful conviction or charges proceed to the point of a prosecution. The club could act. They could have done so lawfully. And they didn't want to because they thought that Mason Greenwood was a bankable star. And they dropped him because they went, he's not a bankable star. It wasn't about the morality or the ethics of the situation at all. Now, after this quick break, we've got one more story for you all about the MP who has all but disappeared from Westminster. Our planet is wounded. As extreme weather events rage across the globe, the mainstream media either acts as if no one is to blame or flat out denies it's happening. We don't want to live less good lives because of some lunatic climate nonsense hysteria from an eco-cult telling us the world's on fire. But here at Navarra Media, we expose climate villains. According to Julie Hartley-Brill, we should just keep calm and carry on. Sunak doesn't want to talk about the environment. We analyse the climate movement and how it's changing and explore what we can do to adapt to climate breakdown. We have to act now. In the face of obscene wealth and influence, we need people-powered media. If you can, join our regular supporters and donate one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com support. We can't do this without you. As you just heard Ash say there, Ashception tonight, we've got Actual Ash, that Ash. We are funded entirely by you, our audience. Thank you so much for your kind donations. They keep this show and all of Navarra Media going. If you would like to be a regular part of people-powered media, you can support our work directly and consistently by going to nuvaramedia.com slash support. That link is in the description box below. Next story. Well... Squatting laws may have made it much harder for the average not-so-legal occupant to lay claim to property or land, but one tenacious squatter has managed to hang on to their place in the Palace of Westminster with no signs of being evicted anytime soon. Yes, Nadine Dorries has become Westminster's most wanted. 
In June, Doris bombastically resigned as an MP. She was acting in protest after the results of a Privileges Committee investigation saw Boris Johnson also step down as an MP. But Johnson's resignation had an immediate effect. A by-election for his seat has been held and won by the Conservatives. Boris Johnson is no longer an MP. But Doris has still not formally resigned. And yet, accusations of the mid-Bedfordshire MP being missing action existed long before she initially said that she'd be leaving the job. This was a Guardian headline from June. Nadine Dorries has completely given up on job as MP long before announcing exit. And from the article, Dorries last spoke in the Commons in July last year and has voted only six times so far this year. While she's a prolific Twitter user, she has barely mentioned any local issues on her feed at all this year, focusing mainly on Johnson and the show she presents on Talk TV. She does not list the address of a constituency office on her website or parliamentary page. Some local people say her last known office in the town of Shefford was closed down and is now a dance studio. It's not known if or when she undertakes constituency surgeries or if those constituency surgeries are done alongside Zumba classes. <laughs> Further from the article... It has previously been reported that Dory's main home is in the Cotswolds. One television source says she has previously appeared on camera from this home and asked to be cited as being in London, which was refused. Dory's has also said that she has said she also has an address in her constituency, but it's not known if this is still the case, and if so, how much time she spends there. Dory's colleagues appear to have given up on her. This was Rishi Sunak being asked about the missing MP on LBC in early August. Nathan says, what should happen to an MP who doesn't speak in Parliament in over a year and takes two months to officially resign? I think he might be talking about your colleague <laughs> Nadine Doris, who hasn't spoken since July of last year. Yeah, look, I, you know, Nadine, your view of Nadine. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think people deserve to have uh, an MP that represents them wherever they are. And, you know, it's just making sure that your MP is engaging with you, representing you, whether that's speaking in Parliament or being present in their constituencies, doing surgeries, answering your letters. Uh, that's a job of an MP, and all MPs should be held to that standard. Let, I, let, so she's I, failing in that, isn't she? Well, at the moment, people aren't being properly represented. For Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, Dory's absenteeism seems to be a full-blown joke. Today in mid-Bedfordshire, I have my bounty hunter, reporter Henry Riley, desperately seeking Dory's. She hasn't been seen so far for some time. When did you last see your parliamentary colleague Nadine Dory's? Oh, um, I don't know when I last saw her, but she did send me. She she did an article in one of the papers where she'd uh, she talked about education. So she did send me a copy of that not that long ago. Uh, but you probably see on the telly, I guess now, don't you? On, I think um, you do on, on some TV. of the channels. You do. Uh, I, I, and maybe if I go back to Liverpool, I might see her uh, hanging around uh, hanging around Scotland Road. There you go. If we uh, go up to TWT, we'll go and hunt for Nadine Dorries. But there's already been a bounty hunter looking for as Ferrari referred to. LBC sent senior reporter Henry Riley to Flitwick to track down the errant MP. We've gone to great lengths to try and find Nadine Dorries. Not only was I out annoying locals in the pubs and uh, shops of Flitwick yesterday evening, as you mentioned, we have a, a very big advert in the local paper. This is the Bedford Times and Citizen, just for the benefit of your listeners. Wanted, have you seen this woman? This is Nadine Dorries, a picture of Nadine Dorries. I don't think it was the last sighting of her with a number to call you. So Nick, you may well get calls from uh, the good folk of Flitwick telling you 
you if they have seen her. And not only that, we have posters, it's upside down, we have posters for lampposts as well. They're going up on bus stops, lampposts. <laughs> we are determined to find Nadine Dorries. If anyone has spotted her, please do let us know. Beyond the jokes, though, Doris could now be facing an investigation into her failure to follow through on her resignation. Campaign group Unlock Democracy have called for an inquiry into Doris's absence while enjoying a full MP's 84k salary. The group commissioned an opinionum survey on Doris's delay in quitting. It found over half of the 2,000 people surveyed thought her actions, or lack of them, had damaged Parliament's reputation. And I, I just want to add something, that while we've been on air, a new story has gone up on The Guardian, which says pressure mounts on Nadine Dorries as second council calls for her to quit. Uh, Shefford Council, along with the town of Flitwick Council, have both said she needs to go. Ash, how on earth has Nadine Dorries become the UK's most successful squatter? I would say congratulations, Nadine Dorries, for running a really successful one-woman trial of UBI. I mean, she's absolutely making bank while doing nothing. But jokes aside, I think what this does is that it points towards some of the real weaknesses in our constitution, which is our constitution was drafted on the good chap theory of democracy, which is if everyone generally acts like a good chap, um, then it's going to run fine. Now, of course, people don't always act like good chaps. In fact, they didn't act like good chaps when our constitution was being developed, but most of that bad chap behavior was going in, in the colonies. So, you know, they didn't want to think about that that much. But now you've got, you know, a, a cadre of self-serving, egomaniacal bastards occupying parliament who have driven a coach and horses through this code of self-regulation which, you know, was once praised as, as the height and sophistication of, you know, all of the world's constitutional democracies. And we can do nothing about it. Absolutely do nothing about it. Um, perhaps if there was a recall petition circulated, though I think that it might need specific circumstances in which that can happen, you could have an MP like Nadine Dorries being held, properly held to account. But right now, she's got absolutely no real leverage that could be used against her to force her to either step down or adequate, adequately represent her constituents. And I think that it it sort of speaks to something quite gross about the you know pantomime and theater of our democracy that is treated like a bit of a joke like oh you know where's Nadine Dorries oh I've not seen her for ages ha 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 that we actually don't expect better of politicians we've got no expectation that politicians are going to do a good job in representing us or our interests so it can kind of become a bit of like what are they all like and I think that's because expectations have been systematically lowered by politicians outsourcing more and more of their functions to the market. Oh, the economy, that's in the hands of the market. Public services, that's in the hands of the market. Wages, that's in the hands of the market. Um, and they operate as sort of glorified pundits. So, you know, in a way, she's like, well, I'm still on TV. I'm still trying to make sure that my profile is sufficiently high. I'm still writing articles. You know, that's all people expect of their politicians at best anyway. We're going to be out of a job soon once all the politicians uh, who are going to be booted out after the 2024 election are looking for new spots to fill. Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight, as always. Thank you for having me and thank you for not replacing me with Lee Anderson just yet. 
let's see if 50p Lee is uh, going to be around after the next voting the ballots open uh remember we will be back tomorrow from 6 p.m thank you everyone at home for watching supporting coming back to us week after week remember you have been watching navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support <laughs>